do you explain how do you describe a love that runs as deep as and runs as deep as it is wide you know all our holes lord you know all our fears and words cannot express the love we feel but we long for you to hear so listen to our hearts and hear our spirits sing a song of praise from those you have redeemed we will use the words we know to tell you what But words are not enough to tell you of our love. So listen to our hearts. If words could fall like rain from these lips of mine. And if I had a thousand years, Lord, I would still run out of time. If you listen to our Thank you for the life, thank you for the truth, and thank you for the way. So listen to our hearts and hear our spirits sing a song of praise that flows those you have To tell you what an awesome God you are. But words are not enough to tell you about love. So listen to our hearts. That song deserves an amen. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, 5, and 16. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. When you do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. This is God's word. You may be seated. Some of you have asked when Ellen is getting back into town. She was supposed to get back into town uh, from the wedding uh, tonight. And they got a text this morning saying that the flight out of Hawaii was canceled uh, because of mechanical problems with the plane. And so she is not getting back until tomorrow, which is, is a bad thing because I have more day without my wife. But at the same time, that's kind of a good thing because it gives me more time to get that house clean. 
<laughs> I digress just for a second here. Uh, you guys know my wife. I mean, she is little and, and mighty, but, you know, she's a lover, not a fighter, and and uh, and, and not the most adventuresome. And you're going, she married, didn't she? I mean, of course she's an adventurer. But um, uh, she she went snorkeling for the very first time out in the ocean yesterday with a shark, four-foot shark. I mean, nearly as big as she is. And... I cannot wait. I don't have a lot of details. Uh, all she told me was uh, it was great. Uh, she kind of got uh, buffeted a little bit by a wave and nearly thrown into a, into a reef, but right on the other side of that reef was a shark. I cannot wait to hear that story. I, I sense a sermon illustration somewhere in the making, and if not, I'll make it fit. <laughs> uh, Shane, in his prayer this morning, mentioned... Um, Terrible events that unfolded yesterday in Poway, California. And um, it just, it's just heartbreaking at how mean human beings can be to each other. Why we're doing this series, uh, A Beautiful Disruptive Presence. Because if there's anything that our world needs right now, is where you find war, it is a disruption when you find peace. When you find meanness and you find racism, it is a disruption at business as usual when there is love and there's kindness and there's gentleness that is inserted into that kind of world. And that's what we have called to be. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of it. We're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into these texts that Rick just read for us. Oh, great Father, we are moved once again in worship that the greatest disruption that has happened in the history of all of the world since is that there was a, a, a death and a burial and a resurrection that has allowed us to not tied to alienation from you to, to be your enemy forever. But the, through love, Father, you have opened the gate, you have opened the door to allow us to come into your presence. And to live our lives as human, not just with our, our sins forgiven, but also, Father, to, to live in, in congruence with your kingdom, to, to align our lives up with your kingdom will for all of creation and for all of your creatures. And so we pray, especially being made sober-minded by the events that continually unfold and transpire in our in our world, Father, to endeavor, to, to galvanize our, our courage and our spirit in such a way to live courageously and disruptively as salt and light in the world. We pray to grow in those areas to your glory and to your praise. So we ask, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're heading the Sermon on the Mount, which is a succinct and articulate description of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. It is a life in which you align your will, I align my will with the will of God. As we saw at the very beginning in the Beatitudes, the kingdom of God life is a blessing-rich life that is available to everyone. It is a transformational life. 
It's more than just sin forgiven. As great as it is to know that you walk through life as a forgiven individual by the creator of the heavens and the earth, it is more than that. It is also transformational in which we experience that inexpressible joy. We, we find that peace that passes understanding, marking our lives in profound ways. God's Spirit living inside of us, making the truth of the words of, of the inspired Scripture to make them alive in us and incarnational in the sense that God's Word in His Bible becomes flesh in our own lives as we live as disciples of Jesus we find ourselves, as Jesus describes us in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, as salt people, which means that we stop the decay in all of the areas and relationships and all of the places and organizations and institutions all around us just by showing up because of the quality of our life. And he says, not only are you the salt of the earth, but you're the light of the world. Which means that by the quality of our life, Jesus seen in us, walking as He walked, that we dispel darkness in all the places that we go in this world by just showing up. Now hopefully, other great things begin to happen. Disciples of Jesus do not live a business-as-usual life. In fact, we might say it this way, disciples of Jesus live a righteous life that goes beyond a merely religious life. And that's what, after he talks about us becoming salt people and light people in his kingdom. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly what? Say it. Not. You will certainly enter the kingdom of heaven. And from that point, Jesus describes this kingdom of God life as one where inner, trans, inner transformation trumps behavioral compliance. And he gives three examples, or he gives uh, actually several uh, examples of this. He says, not only do disciples not commit murder literally, not commit murder technically, but they understand that there are more to, to, uh, to kill a person than just by murdering them. And so disciples of Jesus stop killing people in their hearts by dealing with their own personal anger and contempt and disgust for other individuals. Not only do they commit marital infidelity and sexual immorality, that they stop objectifying people as sexual objects in their heart. We see them as human creatures created by God. We see them as humans who are made in the image of God. And not only do disciples keep their promises and not speak falsely, but they do not use language to manipulate people into doing what they want. In other words, disciples not only love their neighbors, but they love their enemies. They, pr they pray for those that persecute them. We don't love people for what we can get out of them. We don't love people to this and no more. We love as the Christ loved. And this is how you become a beautiful, disruptive presence in the world. Someone strikes you on the right cheek. What is it that you want to do? You want to punch them back. And we know what happens after that. But to be a beautiful, disruptive presence for the kingdom of God, when somebody strikes you on the right cheek, you turn to them the left. You don't strike back. And that's something that you have to think about. It's not the norm. It's, it's, it's 
it's, it's a disruption to that norm. It's what it means to be a kingdom disruption in the business as usual life. And when you do that, it brings a kingdom beauty into the world. And now Jesus, beginning in chapter 6, is going to move from a description of what that inner life in God's kingdom looks like to how it can be short-circuited without us even knowing it. And so we begin with the principle. And the principle is this. Please write it down on your outlines. The principle is you consider carefully the inner life of your outer life. You consider carefully the inner of your outer life. The outer religious life is a reflection of the inner life with God, not an alternative to it. And that's why Jesus has said, you know, you know, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And at the beginning of chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, be careful to practice in the old translations. Uh, it was acts of piety. In some of the more modern translations, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to what? Be seen by them. And in the Jewish world of Jesus in the first century A.D., there were three big acts of the outer religious life. It was giving alms, it was prayer, and it was fasting. And by the time Jesus is on the scene and actually been going on and been on that trajectory for a very long time, all of these had become corrupted in the lives of the Pharisees, although not all of them, but generally speaking, in the main. And this is why Jesus said people desiring to enter the kingdom of God have to have this righteousness. This, this rightfulness in living that surpasses that of the scribes and of the Pharisees. And this is why in other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the God, he says of the Pharisees, Luke chapter 16, the Pharisees who love money heard all of this and they were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. That is, you really care a lot about what other people think of you. But God knows your hearts. And what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, How can you believe since you accept glory in another? But instead, seek the glory that comes from the only God. And John will record this, this instance in John chapter 12 where Jesus again, you know, in that last week of his life, being confronted by these religious leaders, says, Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Let me ask you, no response needed, except in your own heart. Has there ever been a moment in your life where what some human being thought of you or felt about you or might say about you became more important to you than what it is that God might be thinking about your thoughts or your words or your actions or your emotions or your intent. It's here in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus introduces for the first time a new word in the moral vocabulary of the world, and the word is hypocrite. During the years that Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, there was a city called uh, Sephoris that was being rebuilt and reconstructed not far just to the north of Nazareth where he was growing up. And in that city there was a theater, and in that theater there were these actors that in the, the language of, of the first century Jewish world, they were known as hypocrites, actors, which meant that they would put on a mask, 
and the mask was to help you think of them as, as something other than they were as they were acting out some script in order to get applause. And it's highly likely that Jesus and his father would have worked as carpenters in this town and would have noticed this theater. And it's here that Jesus produces, don't be an on-the-stage kind of actor when it comes to doing your acts of righteousness. Many of you have seen, as I have seen, the recent movie Bohemian Rhapsody, story of the rock group Queen. And the actor who plays the part of Freddie Mercury altered the way he looked, the teeth prosthetics and all of that, in such, and the way that he talked and the way that he moved in order for you to believe that he was not Rami Malek, but that he was Freddie Mercury. And he did such a convincing job that he was given an Academy Award. A hypocrite or a stage actor is someone who alters who they are in order to be thought of as someone they are not for the purpose of getting the acclaim or the applause. A hypocrite is not someone who mistake makes mistakes or missteps from time to time, but are trying to, is trying to live through God's grace and to own up to these mistakes and to say, I'm not perfect, but I'm a sinner in recovery. And I'm trying to become the human being that God always intended for me to be. A hypocrite is not an imperfect human, humbly trying to live through God's grace, a life that reflects the kingdom of God. A hypocrite is one who is putting on all of the masks and all of the costumes and is taking all of the stances and adopting all of the actions of someone on the stage in order to make someone think that they are who they are not in order to get the applause. That is a hypocrite. And the problem Jesus addresses with the Pharisees is that they are performing, they're acting out this religious life to get the applause, to get the reward from men, rather than giving their light to shine before men in such a way that men see their good works and are able to give glory to God. And he gives three examples here. He says, giving alms to the poor. Where does profound and true, significant generosity come from? It rarely comes from knowing that you are rich. It typically comes from a heart that recognizes that it has been made rich. And so you have these, these, uh, these actions during the first century, go and, and you're giving your money, the, the coins. There were these copper trumpet-shaped coffers inside of the temple area. We go in with a lot of money and the bags of money, and as they are dumping it into the, the, co the trumpet copper-shaped coffers, they're rattling it. And so you know what, what money sounds like when it's hitting other metal, right? It's loud. And these are copper-shaped trumpets anyway. And so they're going to make a lot of noise. And so as they're going in and they're giving their money, they're just shaking that bag, shaking that bag, shaking that bag, shaking that bag, and making sure every one of those coins hits that trumpet so that people know that they're giving money. So that people know that they're, they're, that they're giving a lot of money. That it's a whole bag full of coins. And he says it's not only blowing the trumpets when you're giving your alms, but it's also the way that you pray. What is prayer anyway? Prayer 
is conversational partnership with God about the will of God as it plays out in your life and in the world at large. But here are folks who are using prayer as an opportunity to create the illusion of personal, deep, profound spirituality and making sure that everybody witnessed it. They would go on and on and on and on and on, impressing people with, with words and prayer. But what Jesus is saying is that it's just empty. It's just empty. And then there's fasting. Fasting is more than just going without food. We'll talk, well, there's not enough time. I mean, each of these warrant and really deserve a, a sermon in themselves. But, but think about fasting. It's more than going without food. When you fast, you are saying, God, I need you more than I need this food. When you fast, you are saying, God, I, I desire you and I, I need you and, and, and you are the one who sustains me more than this food. There are times in your life where you don't want the food. and There's something that's going on. It's a crisis. It's a tough time in your life. And, and you're fasting and you're praying to God. And when you're fasting, you're saying, I, I find no comfort in food. The way that I find comfort in you. That's in part what fasting is all about. It's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 4. When Satan comes to him after going 40 days without food, and he has every right in the world to be hungry, and he has every right in the world to eat. But Satan comes to him and says, you know, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really the Son of God, which means that God's his Father, and the Father's going to love him, and we read after his baptism, he is driven by the Spirit into the desert, that is God that has taken him there. The devil says, if you are really the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, well, no, 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 no. Man shall not live by what? Bread alone. But by, say it with me, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But in Jesus' day, there were those that wanted to get that, you know, that prophetic, disheveled kind of Miami Vice. Now that dates me. That Miami Vice look, you know, half shaved, you know, half hair, comb haired, which is what I kind of look like half the time anyway. I just have the weird disheveled hair. And they're looking for somebody to say, are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. And, and please uh, excuse the way I look. I'm fasting. And Jesus says, it's just empty. Don't fast that way. He says, truly, if you do that, looking for the acclaim, for the applause of men, you have already received your reward in full. Now, a quick correction before we... Many have thought through the ages that this terminology, left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, going into a private place, your closet to pray, combing your hair, washing your face, brushing your teeth, taking a mint while, while you're fasting, that that was teaching that you are to do things secretively. And, and in a sense, that's true, but sometimes not to the point that we, the extremes that we take it. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to be seen doing an act of righteousness. What is wrong is the act of righteousness being done in order to be seen and to create the illusion that you are somebody that you are not deep down in your heart. So how do you do this? How do you recognize hypocrisy in your heart? 
And everyone, every single person in this room, myself included, myself for my have the seeds of this kind of destruction in our own lives. And we have to watch that we don't want it. We have to watch that like the seed of, 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 of anger that it's, is watered so much that it grows, that anger grows into contempt and disgust into full-fledged full murder. And the same with lust growing into full-fledged adultery and sexual immorality and, and, and all of these other areas of our life. And so we would begin to recognize the human potential for hypocrisy. The human heart needs approval. There's nothing wrong with that. One of the greatest days of my life, I should say days, have been those days I've been chosen. You know, being chosen to to play on a football team, to be chosen to be on a wrestling team. The the greatest of these days, the day that that there was such a rightness about me that Ellen said, "Yes, I want to be your your wife. I want to be your spouse." The human heart needs that kind of approval, and there's nothing wrong with that. We just need to make sure that it is God's approval, overarching approval. It's God's overarching stamp of of love on our lives that we're seeking. Our world is full of approval addicts seeking acceptance in all of the wrong places. We spend a lot of money convincing people that we're okay. Religious people are no different from that temptation that there is a peace that passes understanding. There is There is joy, an inexpressible joy that comes when we fully realize and live within the knowledge that we are loved by God. And that you you don't have to cover up. That God knows you better than you know yourself. God sees, God knows, God has been in every instance of whatever wrongness and darkness and fleshliness you've been a part of. But He loves you anyway. And His Son died for you anyway in that love. And then number two, not only recognize that there's this potential for hypocrisy in all of our lives, but number two, let's choose to live before an audience of one. Let's live before an audience of one. This is the way that Oz Guinness, in writing about the Puritans, Describe the life of the Puritans. Everything that they did, they lived it as if they were living before an audience of one. They saw all of their life, all of their actions, all of their words, their emotional life, their affections. All of their life was lived in the presence of God before an audience of one. And quite frankly, church, that's why we're doing all of these spiritual discipline classes, Sunday morning and adult classes, to draw near to God, to not look like we're close to God, but to find ourselves drawing near to God closer and closer and closer by adopting these habits, by adopting these disciplines, by cutting chunks of time away in our day in order to focus, to focus on God and to intentionally water those seeds of spiritual growth that blossom out into love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning, think about slowing. 
you know, one, one of the things that's just really hard about our culture is that we say, yeah, 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 workaholism, that's a terrible thing. But guess what is the work behavior that America applauds? Harder, faster, and ironically, what do we say when somebody's just doing great and they're working all the time and they're making, we say they are what? Killing it. They're killing it. What are they really killing? When you're driving fast down the road, how many things on the side of the road do you notice? And the faster you go, the more focused, the more myopic, the more tunnel vision you become as you're going down that road. How many times have you run across somebody at the end of their life that said, Boy, man, I, I, you know, I just, if I had to do it all over again, I messed up. I messed up. I should have spent more time smelling the roses, investing in the things that were really important. I wish that I would have what? Spent more time with my spouse. Spent more time with my children. And I was just going so hard, so hard, so fast, so fast. And so the habit of slowing is, is to slow down and to see what it is that is around us. To, to not be going so fast that, yes, you're going through the actions and the motions of the things that are important. But in the end, they're not where your heart really is. And that's where it becomes hypocrisy. To slow your life down, to simplify your life, to slow your life down in order for you to concentrate on that relationship. To be able to concentrate on the qualities of God that have made this impact on your life. I mean, how, how, how many times have you ever just in quietness and in a moment of silence and without distractions, you just began to think about the cross and the fact that he not only died on the cross, but Scripture says he suffered. And it was in order for him, all of your sin upon him, and for you to put on his righteousness. When you know deep down, you don't deserve it. We're going to make mistakes. We, we're going to, we, we are a, a group of people that are recovering from fallenness. We are people who recognize that we needed help to get up off the ground. And the reason that we can get off the ground when we stop long enough to think about it is that God loved us was not going to allow the people that he loved, the creation that he loved and said is good, to just throw it away. You remember that movie, Castaway, a couple of years ago with uh, during the, the Tom Hanks heyday? You know, uh, Forrest Gump, and then whatever his name was in, in Castaway. And you remember, he's on this marooned, he's, he's marooned on this deserted island, and he's a, he's a FedEx guy, and, you know, these packages roll up, and he's, he's very res resourceful, he's very bright. And he's trying to figure out, how, how do I live? How do I live? How do I live? And there's this Wilson volleyball. And you remember what happened? He cuts his hand, and there's a, a, a palm print on the, on the volleyball, and he makes eyes and nose. And, you know, the, the, the interaction between Tom Hanks and this volleyball was so great that some people thought that the volleyball should have won the Academy Award. But there's this incredible scene where, where Tom Hanks says, i got to get off this island. I, 
I, I need to move on. Even if it means dying. So he gets the raft. They get over that the, the outer waves that are circling, the, the barrier that keeps them from getting off earlier. They make it over the top of that, and they're out at sea. And there's that moment where Wilson, because of a wave, is in the water. And you, if you've seen the movie, you remember this scene. How distraught Tom Hanks becomes when he sees this volleyball with the blood of his palm forming a face that has been his companion, and whatever that means, that kept him alive. And he sees it floating away in the water. He just becomes distraught at the idea of Wilson floating away. You know, that's what happened in heaven. When God saw all of us floating away. But he was able to do something about it. He was able to rescue all of the Wilsons, all of the Marks, all of the us, in such a way that we're his. We are his. And we've been given this life. We have been given this life of forgiveness and of direction and of purpose and of presence. His presence. He's with you and he's with me. He's with all of us. We don't go anywhere without the presence of God beside us and in front of us and around us and in us and above us. Nowhere. And as we draw near to him and he draws near to us, as Shane in that beautiful prayer this morning mentioned, you know, the words of James, drawing near to him as he draws near to us, we find ourselves becoming a beautiful disruptive presence in the world to the glory of God and the blessing of human beings. And we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front, and perhaps there are some things can help you with that. If you would like to put your Lord on in baptism, to be forgiven, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit through baptism and confession and repentance and, and persevering through life with a church family and, and living your life in, in the shadow of God's presence and all that you do. We can do that this morning. Or if there's prayer, or if there's there's any other way that we might minister to you this morning, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them as we stand. And we praise God together. Let's stand and sing. When my way grow drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is on. Take my hand, precious Lord.